2009, September 28th. Today is Lecture 4, The Copernican Revolution. Now, the point of this new, new unit on five revolutions is a belief that I have that it's as important that we know where our ideas came from as we know what those ideas are. And so what I'm going to do is in order to be able to set the stage for the study of the search of life in the universe, I really want to know why is it now, the first decade of the 21st century, has the astrobiology, the search for life on other worlds, really become a serious topic of scientific inquiry? Why, are we, why is it now, why weren't we doing this back in the 19th or 14th or heck 300 BC? Why is it now we think we can get serious answers out of this? And the reason has to do with the fact that we live at a fairly unique time in history where all the pieces are in place really for the first time. 20, 30 years ago when I was in college, astrobiology was considered a speculative near joke. It was considered a boondoggle. Why is NASA wasting money on this? Now it's actually a very serious area of scientific inquiry making actual real progress. We haven't found ET yet, but we're starting the process to do that. And the reason is because there are really a number of antecedents intellectually going on here that allow us to understand that we are beginning to have the conceptual framework where we can actually ask scientific questions and actually show ourselves being able to actually interpret the answers we get back. And these advances are not only philosophical and intellectual, but they're also technological as well. And so I'm going to be using the stories of these five revolutions in thought. The Copernican Revolution, where we discovered our place in the solar system. The Chemical Revolution, where we understood what the nature of matter was. The Geological Revolution, where we understood the depths of time and the antiquity of the Earth. The Biological Revolution, where we understood what life was and roughly what it comes from. And finally, the cosmological revolution, where we understand what we mean when we talk about the universe. All of those five revolutions in thought really are necessary to bring us to the stage where we can begin to sensibly ask the question, are we alone in the universe? So today we're going to start with the Copernican Revolution. This lecture is going to discuss the Copernican Revolution, and there are three major points. The first is that the Copernican Revolution is a good place to start because science was born, what we now recognize as science, was born out of an effort over many centuries to understand the motions of the celestial bodies. They presented a challenge to us that basically set in motion the events that were necessary to develop the techniques and methods of science. Two competing models were proposed to explain celestial motions, the motions of the sun, the moon, the stars, and the planets. One of these was called the geocentric or earth-centered model, and the other was the heliocentric or sun-centered models. And the disagreements between the two and the working out of which of these is the correct one is all the series of activity that ultimately gives rise to science. In fact, the final success of the heliocentric model, no one, no sensible human being believes anything other than the heliocentric model to explain the celestial motions in our place in the solar system, really relied not only on crucial philosophical insights, but also technological advantages that brought us to the point that the proof of that model was incontrovertible. So this is where we're going to go today. We're going to look at the question of the Copernican Revolution, the revolution that literally started them all. Now, before we begin, we have to look a little bit about the basic inquiry of science. If you take any scientific field, astronomy, geology, biology, anything, there are three basic classes of questions that are common to all scientific inquiries. The first of these is the most basic. What is it? Describe it. How bright is the object? How far away is it? How big is it? What is it made of? What we're doing is, well, the first question, what is it, 
is basically a fact-gathering exercise. We're gathering the facts, or really we're gathering the data that provide an empirical foundation for that inquiry. What is it we're trying to understand? First, we've got to describe it before we can attempt to understand it. Once I've got a good empirical basis, not a complete, we don't have to be complete answers here, just enough to start moving us forward, I can go on to the second question, how does it work? This is really where the rubber hits the road. This is where we ask, what are the underlying physical principles by which these phenomena occur? And these underlying physical principles must be testable. I can't just say, well, because it is. That's just not an answer. I have to be able to test our ideas and be able to see if, in fact, they work. And the way we test our ideas is, whatever my underlying description, my model for, for describing the phenomenon, I must explain all aspects of the observed facts and data in the matter. I can't just say, well, yeah, two out of three ain't bad, let's go get a beer. That doesn't work. You've got to get that third in there or the whole system falls apart. This is hard. And this is often takes a very long time to, to really come to a consensus on what's going on. And we often have to proceed with very incomplete knowledge. But where we, where we really want to get is the third question. How does it evolve? Now, the word evolve and the word evolution, of course, we all are recognizing from the arguments over biological evolution, natural selection. But in fact, the word evolution is much more general in the sciences. It comes from the Latin evolvare, meaning to unfold, an unfolding. Basically, phenomena don't just sit there as they've always been and always will be. They have an origin. They formed at some point, a planet, a star, a plant, something formed and develops over time. If you want to look at it in terms of life, it's born, lives out its life, and dies. Or you might look at populations of life and see that those populations change over long periods of time. Or you might look at a star and see a star go from formation out of a gas cloud through a series of developments and eventually end its existence as a supernova explosion or something like that. By answering the question, how does it evolve? How does this physical system play out in time? What I really have is the final big step, this grand synthesis into a coherent, self-consistent explanation for the phenomenon. The first is pretty straightforward. That's just the basic empirical practice of science. Go out and get the facts, collate the data, try to make coherent sense out of them. The second question is try to explain how they work, and then put all those pieces together into a coherent system of, of, of explanation that allows us to understand the phenomenon. I think it was Stephen Jay Gould, the, the, the uh, naturalist writer, once commented that the art of science is basically the art of advanced BS detection, although he didn't use the word BS. Basically, here's a way you can spot BS in pseudoscience and other non-scientific areas. They'll skip the hard parts of collecting data and try to understand it physically and try to jump, jump to the grand synthesis and give you the big picture without doing all the hard work. Pseudoscience, astrology, new age medicine, all kinds of things like that, fundamentally, in addition to being wrong, are lazy. They want to get to the big picture without doing all the hard work to get there. Well, we got to do the hard work. So let's take an example of one of the most important of these processes, the understanding of our place in the solar system, the understanding of the motions we see in the heaven through the culmination in what we refer to in the late 16th and early 17th centuries of the Copernican Revolution. Let's start with the observed facts. What do we see? What is it? Describe it. Let's describe what we see in the sky. Celestial motions, for the most part, visible to the naked eye now. So no telescopes, just standing outside and looking up at the sky day and night. What do we see? 
Well, for the most part, what we see are very regular and repeatable motions. The stars appear to rise in the east each evening, set in the west towards morning. The sun also rises in the east and sets in the west daily, but if I look carefully, I'll see that the sun does not always rise and set against the same stars, but in fact slowly moves eastward relative to the background stars, completing one circuit of the sky through the course of a year. It moves roughly one degree per day to the east, in addition to the east to west motion. We now understand this as seeing that's a reflection of the motion of the orbit of the Earth around the sun, but you could equally well explain it by the Earth sitting still and the sun making an additional second yearly motion around the sky. Finally, the other big, bright, regular celestial body is the moon. The moon, too, rises in the east and sets in the west daily, but in addition to those motions, it moves eastward circuit relative to the stars through the course of one month, and of course, as it goes through that one month of, of motion, it goes through the cycle of phases. First quarter, crescent moon, full moon, and so forth. These motions are so regular and so repeatable and so reliable, we built our calendars and our clocks upon them, right? The stars rising in the east and setting in the west daily gives us the 24-hour day. The sun rising and set gives us our civil day with respect to day, night, time, and night time. But the eastward circuit through the stars gives us the course of the year and the course of the four seasons, or the different places the sun is across the sky. The moon going through the course of phases gives us the month. So they're so regular and so repeatable that it's easy to come up with simple geometric or even metaphorical descriptions for these cycles. If that was all we saw in the sky, we wouldn't have had a whole lot of incentive for digging too much deeper below the surface appearances. Everything would seem to be just a natural cycle, day after day, year after year, month after month, reflecting the motions of the celestial bodies. The problem is the planets. There are five planets visible to the naked eye. Mercury and Venus, which always stay near the sun, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, which appear all over the sky. The planetary motions are not simple. In fact, they're quite a bit much more complex. And in fact, they show occasional retrograde or backwards motion. So if I was to go outside, for example, at sunset tonight, if it's clear, if rain doesn't come in, Jupiter is the bright star you see. It's risen in the east. It rises a little bit before sunset. And it's going to make its way rising in the east and setting in the west, just like every other star and the sun and the moon in the sky. But if you watch the course of the motion of Jupiter across the sky through the course of the year, or Mars or any of the other planets, what you would see is they would generally move eastward relative to the stars at a different speed than the sun or the moon, but they'd be moving eastward night to night. But then every now and then, they would be moving eastward, stop, start moving westward or retrograde, slow down, stop again, and continue tootling along on their way to the east. This is a particular loop made by Mars, a beautiful photograph by a Turkish um, amateur astronomer, Tung Tetzel, who takes beautiful time-lapse photographs like this, of the motions of Mars seen in the nighttime sky during the years 2005 and 2006. It's roughly from December through February here. And there's the Pleiades, for example, the Seven Sisters sitting right there. So Mars makes this little sort of S-shape or Z-shaped loop on the sky. Mars going through another one of these loops might actually make a full loop-de-loop -loop across the sky. And Jupiter and Saturn and Venus and Mercury, they all go through this retrograde motion. This complex motion simply defies easy geometric or metaphorical description. It's really complex. And it's got so many nuances in it that it presents a real challenge to understand. Why do they move that way? Why are the planets different? So these are the observed facts. What is it? Describe it.
Pretty simple motion, sun, moon, stars, planets, not so much. Little complicated wrinkles we gotta, we gotta explain. Two classes of models were proposed to explain them about the same time, in about the third, fourth century BC. Actually, the first of these models, the so-called geocentric or Earth-centered model, describes these motions as we're actually seeing the motion of the sun, the motion of the stars, the motion of the moon and planets through the sky. The Earth is sitting, fixed and unmoving at the center of the universe, and the heavens literally wheel about us. Now, this particular little model here, the details are not important. It just shows one arrangement of these models. It's by a fellow by the name of Eudoxus, who was a contemporary of, or a predecessor of Aristotle's. He saw the uh, sun, moon, and stars, and planets as affixed to various crystalline spheres. Those spheres had different axes at different angles to explain the different planes of motion we see in the sky. And all of these spheres within spheres turned upon each other in such a way as to exactly produce the motions of the planets. Now, they don't explain what the spheres are made of or how they're moving, but it does sort of preserve the appearances here. This is in many ways a kind of a common sense point of view. Right? We don't feel like we're moving around the sun. We don't feel the motion of our rotation. So saying that we're unmoving and the rest of the heavens are moving around us is pretty close to common sense. The alternative picture were the so-called heliocentric models or sun-centered models. These explain the motions around the sun as essentially an, due to the fact that all the planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, to stick to the naked eye planets, all circling around the sun in sort of a general direction of circulation. But we're not at the center. The sun is at the center, and we're watching that whole panoply of motions from the moving Earth. And so what we see is a compound of our motion plus the motion of the planets, and that combination is what produces the complex motions that we see. So the stars rising in the east and setting in the west is just the Earth rotating around its axis. The sun making its slow eastward pass around the sky along the path called the ecliptic through the year is just simply the fact that I'm watching the sun as I'm turning around it and I see different stars in the background as I'm on different parts of my orbit. The whole thing with the other planets are, it's like being in traffic. You catch up with some planets and pass them, other planets catch up to you and pass you, and you see the relative motion going on. So the motions we see in the sky are not the true motions, but an apparent motion, which is a compound of our motion and theirs. So the, here's two completely equivalent ways of describing the same observed phenomena, but they're different ways, very dramatically different ways of describing it. So how do I tell? How do I pick one model over another? One set of data, two interpretations. How do we go about doing that? It was hard. It took humanity nearly two millennia to do so. This is why I said that science is sometimes separable from pseudosciences. The grand synthesis took 2,000 years in this case, and technological advances along the way. So let's look at some of the reasoning between how people tried to pull these apart. Aristotle, who lived in the third century BC, argued for a geocentric model on physical grounds. His arguments were pretty much as follows. The first was that the Earth was fixed and unmoving at the center because the Earth was so big that it was simply irrational that it could be moving. In fact, it didn't even make sense that it was rotating, right? Something this big. And if you work out the speeds of rotation you would need and the speed of the orbit, they were unimaginable to people to whom the fastest thing was, say, a javelin being thrown or a very fast flying bird. The speeds we're talking about of the motion of the Earth and, and 
around the sun and the motion of the earth around its axis are measured in thousands of miles per hour. Simply couldn't imagine it. Finally, the, idea, the second part was that the sun, moon, planets, and stars were affixed to crystalline spheres. And furthermore, these crystalline spheres were not moving in any old way. They were following uniform circular motion. A, a notion of geometric perfection of motion that had its origination with Plato. And it's the combinations of these perfect motions, these wheels within wheels of these crystalline spheres, that when they're put all together, produce a net retrograde in non-uniform motions observed by the planets. In fact, if you look carefully, the sun does not move at the same constant speed across the sky. Nowadays, the sun moves a little bit faster against the stars in January, a little bit slower out towards the end of June. That difference of the length of the seasons, for example, had to be explained. And so you explained it by add a few more wheels, tweak up the machinery, everything kind of works. But Aristotle did it on physical grounds. He took the common sense observation that the Earth was really big and it's really hard to get big things moving, right? Push around a truck versus pushing around a small bag. It's a lot easier to push around a small bag. The Earth is the biggest thing we know of. It's an absurdity for it to be in motion. But there were alternatives proposed. Wow, that was interesting. The alternative was proposed by Aristarchus of Samos, who took, came in the century after Aristotle. Now, Aristarchus was a very good astronomer, and he made a series of geometric observations attempting to measure the distance of the moon from the Earth and the distance of the sun from the Earth-Moon system. He had a very clever trick with geometry where he used the times of first quarter and last quarter, which give you slightly different times between first and last quarter phase on this close to the sun side, between last quarter new moon and first quarter moon, it takes less time for the moon to go through those phases than it takes it to go through first quarter full moon and last quarter moon. That difference is because of this triangular geometry drawn up here. And it's a difficult observation to do, but Aristarchus did it and found that the moon sun must be at least 20 times further away from the Earth than the moon is from the Earth. So he measured the leg of this leg of the triangle was 1 20th of the long triangle leg between the Earth and the sun. Well, we don't know exactly what Aristarchus's motivation for picking the heliocentric model was, but certainly if you compute that the sun is 20 times further away than the moon, you do a little bit of geometry, you say, you know, that makes the sun a whole lot bigger than the Earth, at least five times bigger than the Earth or more. So if Aristotle was going to run around claiming it was an absurdity for the Earth to be in motion, putting the sun in motion was an even greater absurdity. So maybe, since the sun seems to be the biggest body in the solar system, maybe Aristarchus said, why don't we put that at the center, and then all of a sudden we can get ourselves into a heliocentric system that explains all those complexities of motions as just that problem of compound motion. Of, hello. Give me just a second here. Compound motion of, we, of, seeing the moving solar system from the perspective of the moving Earth. So these ideas are kind of complicated, but we have to try to sift between one or the other. The Aristarchan idea was really good, but unfortunately we don't know what it is in detail, because all the works of Aristarchus of Samos have been lost to us in antiquity. And the reason they've been lost is because, well, things just get lost over 2,000 years of chaos and warfare and other things. We do, however, know of Aristarchus's work through the writings of others who didn't like the idea, who were basically just could not handle the idea of the earth being in motion. In fact, there is an account that says that Aristarchus was actually um, 
prosecuted for a short time for impiety, for putting the earth in motion, for making certain claims about what the gods could and could not do uh, to set things in motion. So we, we, whatever the system, and we know it's the right answer today, people sort of stood to the precipice and for other ideas, philosophical, religious, and otherwise, decided to step away from that precipice. This is all very fun and interesting, isn't it? So what happened here is I uh, forgot to plug in my laptop, and it's gone off, so I've been filling the air here. So how did people then make these geocentric models work? It's pretty clear that the geocentric models required a great deal of, of machinery to get themselves working. You needed to explain why it was that the Mars would stop in its motion, stop, move backwards, and then start moving forward again. And so people began to put together models of greater and greater levels of elaboration. And those great levels of elaboration eventually reached the point where they started building tremendous geometrical machinery to be able to get the, the preserve the appearances. And that was one of the whole goals in this whole game. It was the idea that you somehow could preserve appearances in the sky. So let's look at how we can make that machinery work. Okay, technology is going to be a problem today, so let's do it. Well, one way is you put the Earth here at the center, and you got Mars. One of the ideas that was come up with by a bright guy named Hipparchus of, of uh, Nicaea was instead of putting the planet out here on the circle centered on the Earth and simply had it rolling around in a uniform speed, you rested that circle on a second circle. So that second circle turned within the first circle on top of it. It's called an epicycle. If you follow the motion of the epicycle around as the two wheels turn on each other, you get a series of nested loop-de-loop -loop patterns, like this. It reproduces beautifully the observed properties of, the, of, say, a planet like Mars moving through the sky. Every now and then, it comes and moves backwards towards the west, or retrograde, but the rest of the time it's moving forward, or prograde, off into the distance. <laughs> this is just not my day. So we get this retrograde motion. We get the retrograde motion appearing in approximately the right direction, in approximately the right order, but we don't have... Um, all of the pieces together. I have to fine-tune everything in here to get everything to come out just right. So you can get, through the motion of these wheels within wheels, you can get this sort of general motion here towards the east, and then just by tuning up how fast the big wheel turns and then how fast the little wheel turns, and you just tune them up like a little gear work machinery, you can get all those pieces to come together pretty much as you see portrayed here. So by combining the wheels within wheels, you could come up with a contrivance to preserve appearances. The greatest elaboration of these took many, many circles, 48 circles, to describe the motions of the heavens. Now, in the heliocentric system, as I said, what we're looking at is we're seeing the motion of the planet from the perspective of a moving Earth. So as the Earth catches up, for example, here with Mars, eventually it passes Mars by. 
When it passes Mars by, of course, when I look at Mars, I only see Mars projected with respect to the background stars. And so when I catch up with Mars and pass it, it's like going down in traffic. The person next to you appears to be caught by and moving around them. You appear to be moving past them. They appear, from your perspective, to be moving backwards. So really, what we're seeing with Mars retrograde motion is Mars is not stopping. Mars is still tootling along in its orbit around the sun, just like always. But what happens is we catch up and we pass it by. And because we're viewing the moving planets from the perspective of yet another moving planet, the compound of those motions produces this illusion of retrograde motion. So it's purely an optical illusion of viewing a moving solar system from a moving Earth. Well, the idea for all of its simplicity never caught on. And the reason why is because people had a brain lock on this idea that the Earth had to stay put. The Earth couldn't move. It was fixed and unmoving at the center of the universe. The common sense view could not be let go of. The ultimate expression of the geocentric system was done in 150 AD by Claudius Ptolemy. It was a model that used 48-odd wheels within wheels and was to prevail for 1,500 years because people just couldn't get away from this idea of the Earth being, being at the center of the universe, that the Earth was a special place, and that the entire heavens wheeled above us. But to give proper predictions of the motions, you had to build machinery of greater and greater complex computational complexity. Now, the thing is, here's the, here's the rub. If you look at the motions of the solar system from a geocentric perspective, those motions really are complicated. They're really wickedly complicated. So complicated that it's not surprising that if you demand the Earth be centered on the solar system, that you would have to be driven to this kind of massive machinery. So here's a movie coming up, I hope which is going to show you a calculation of the real solar system. This is not trying to build the, the Ptolemaic machinery, but actually doing a real calculation on the real motions in the solar system, but telling the computer to take the perspective of a fixed Earth. What you see is the sun goes around the sky once a year. The planets seem to move through complicated patterns, follow the motion of Mars here. Every now and then Mars goes whoop, makes a little retrograde loop, and then goes back around proceeding east. And now we'll switch on the orbit tracks for Mercury and Venus. And you'll let them sort of build up for 5, 6, 10, 20 years. Now we'll switch that same motion, just simply put the sun at the center. Everybody's simply running around their little orbital racetracks here in a nice counterclockwise direction, all moving along, no crossing of orbits, nothing else. The solar system really is as complicated as the Ptolemaic machinery when you view it from the perspective of a moving Earth. It's having to break free of that Earth-centered perspective that was the key insight that you had to get past in order to get out of this brain lock of the Aristotelian view of the world. Now, not everyone bought it. Never, not everyone bought this complex machinery. Alfonso X of Castile, who lived in the 13th century AD, who was often referred to as Alfonso the Wise, was said to have commented after being instructed on the Ptolemaic system, which was newly being discovered in Arabic texts, which had made their way into late Middle Ages Europe, it said, if the Lord Almighty had consulted me before embarking upon the creation, I should have recommended something simpler. He really did hit on the basic problem. The Ptolemaic system was amazingly complicated. Why should nature be that complicated? That didn't make sense. A lot of people were bothered by it. 
But because of the adoption of Aristotle by the church, because of the philosophical beauty of the Aristotelian system, it was taken pretty much as canon law for a long time, that the earth was fixed and unmoving at the center, and the heavens wheeled about us with this complex machinery. Along in the 15th century, in the late 16th century, comes Nicholas Copernicus. Copernicus was a churchman. He, worked, he was a canon at Frauenberg Cathedral in, in what is now Torun, Poland. Uh, he was a staunch Aristotelian like many of his day, but he was dissatisfied with the immense complexity of the Ptolemaic geocentric system that had been put forward. He felt that, yes, indeed, you can use this complex machinery, you can make good predictions of planetary motions, but at the end of the day, a system should please the mind as well as preserve appearances. And he was really troubled by some of the things that had to be put into that machinery to make it work. So he revived the Aristarchan idea of a heliocentric system. He didn't have Aristarchus's work, but he had a description of it by uh, Archimedes, a hero of Alexandria. said, you know, this actually offers tremendous simplicity. But Copernicus didn't go quite all the way. He did put the sun at the center. He did get the planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and then this final sphere of the fixed stars shown in this manuscript from his 1543 book. But he still couldn't let go of the Aristotelian belief in uniform circular motion as being the perfect motion of the heavens. And so he had to build this simplified model of the solar system, but to make it work, he had to layer on all the baggage of epicycles. In fact, he used more epicycles than the prevailing geocentric system of his day. Well... People used this as a way of calculating the motions of the planets. A big user of the work of Copernicus was, in fact, medical doctors. Medical doctors? Why? Anybody know why a medical doctor would care about planetary motions in the 16th century? Because part of uh, medical practice in the 16th century was casting horoscopes for your patients. And they needed to cast horoscopes. And Copernicus was a whole lot easier to use than the geocentric models of the day. Now, there were two, now, in addition to sort of the practical aspects, there were some real objections to this. The first objection was just that problem of rotating and orbiting the Earth. The kinds of speeds you need are tremendous. The speed of rotation at Columbus, Ohio, for the rotating Earth is 1,280 kilometers an hour. The speed of the Earth's orbital motion to complete that circle of a radius of, uh, roughly a circle of radius 150 million kilometers in one year, means that the Earth is moving around the Sun at 107,000 kilometers every hour. In fact, for every second I'm up here yammering, the Earth has moved a full 30 kilometers along its orbital path. Those speeds are simply unimaginable to anyone outside the modern age. And even these, I don't know about you, but I find 107,000 kilometers per hour to be pretty hard to imagine too. So imagine people who worked primarily on muscle power and the fastest thing they knew was a fast sailing ship just simply seemed absurdity to them. But just because something seems absurd to you doesn't mean it isn't, in fact, physically possible. But the real big objection was that there was no observational evidence of this orbital motion of the Earth around the Sun. In particular, there were two phenomena that were not observed, or at least apparently not observed. Stellar parallaxes and the fact that the stars weren't brighter when they were at opposition. The stars weren't brighter when the stars were up at midnight than at different times of the year because you thought of yourself moving around the circle, you're closer to some parts of the celestial sphere at other parts of your, of your orbit, but the stars always seem to be exactly the same brightness. These last two are very, very strong objections, but they're based on a mistaken assumption. The assumption is the stars lie just outside the sphere of the planets. 
they had no idea how far away the stars really were. In fact, stars are brighter at opposition, and they are. is stellar parallaxes. It's just the stars are too far away to see that with the naked eye. You need telescopic observations. I'm going to skip over the stuff on parallaxes here because of our little technical glitch. So these are real big observational problems. If you really wanted to prove that the Earth went around the sun and not the other way around, you had to somehow show independently of your philosophical and mathematical calculations that the Earth really did circle the sun. And that was a problem, it turns out, is not behind the Copernican Revolution. That problem was so technologically difficult it wasn't solved until 1830s. By then, the Copernican Revolution was long over. So the real problem of Copernicus came down to a combination of philosophical and technical problems. Enter into this game Johannes Kepler, who came in the generation after Copernicus. Kepler was a brilliant German mathematician who was a staunch Copernican in his, in his way of thinking. And he was able to take the very best data of his time, the very best naked eye data, pre-telescopic, collected by the famous Danish astronomer Tycho Brahe, and using 20 years worth of superb observations of the orbit of Mars, try to track out what was the orbit of Mars, what was the distance of Mars, what was the shape of its orbit. He started out by trying to do just what Copernicus did. He wanted the motions in the heavens to be uniform circular motion on perfect circles. And he began to fit through the data for where Mars was in the sky. He first mapped out the orbit of the Earth, which looks about like, an, like a circle. Then he started matching the points of the orbit of Mars around the sky. He first put one, two, and three points and put a circle through it. You can always put a circle through any three points. He found that circle was slightly off-center from the sun, but that was okay. That eccentric was known to the geocentric system, too. Then he tried to plop down a fourth point. The fourth point didn't fit on the circle. It was a tiny, tiny little bit, a small fraction of the diameter of the full moon away. But Kepler knew that Tycho Brahe had taken the data and never made a mistake that big in his observations, ever. And this is where Kepler changed the world. Instead of throwing that data point out or finding other data that fit his circle, he started questioning his assumptions. He said, why doesn't the data point fit on the circle? Maybe the orbit's not a circle. Maybe the orbit is some other shape. That's how you change the world. Not by coming up with grand ideas, but by paying attention to the data. And when the data tell you your idea is wrong, you start changing your ideas. And that's what Kepler did, and he realized all of a sudden that this brain lock on uniform circular motion and everything else that we've been suffering under for nearly two millennia was because we just simply had the wrong idea. He threw them all out, and he reformulated the planetary motions in terms of three completely new laws. The Kepler's three laws of planetary motion are absolutely essential to us. They break the deadlock of Aristotle, and they set us on the path to the modern world by finding the beginnings of a physical explanation. Kepler didn't have a physical explanation yet, but he had the key, what is it, describe it moment that pointed the way. The first of these laws is that the orbit of every planet is not a perfect circle, but it's an ellipse with the sun located at a special geometric location called one of the focuses of the ellipse. So not circles, but ellipses. That's why Mars moved the way it did. In fact, the Earth is even an ellipse, a very slight one. That's why it moves faster in January and slower in June. It's because it's closer to the sun in January and further out in June. The second law was to notice that the change of the speeds of the planets as they went around the sun was not due to wheels within wheels, but due to a simple geometric relationship that if you took a line from the sun to the planet and looked at how much area it swept out, say, in 10 days, 
when it's over here close to the sun, and you go to the opposite side of the orbit, on the far side here, and see how much area it sweeps out in that same, in another, another 10 days, you find that those two triangles have exactly the same area. That a line from the planet to the sun sweeps out equal areas in equal times. It's a geometric description of the change of speeds of planets as they move around the sun. And it is, in fact, an exact description of that change in speed. He actually tripped across something we now know is the conservation of angular momentum, all in Newton. Finally, the third law, and this is the one that got Kepler really excited. The period of an orbit is how long it takes the planet to go once around the sun. You can measure it in years. The Earth takes one year to go once around its orbit. What he found is that the period that a planet takes to go once around its orbit was not any old number, but in fact was in a precise mathematical relationship with the size of that orbit, quantified by something called the semi-major axis of the ellipse. For our purpose, semi-major axis is to an ellipse what the radius is to a circle. A circle is simply an ellipse with both foci together and its semi-major axis equal to its orbit. What he found was the square of the period measured in years was exactly equal to the semi-major axis of the orbit raised to the third power, cubed. It was an exact number relationship. Kepler was excited by this because he was intoxicated by ideas of musical harmony and universal harmonies. The idea that the universe was run by physical laws, that those physical laws were knowable, and that you could express them mathematically. And now all of a sudden, in the strange arrangement of the planets was hiding this law that described that they didn't move around the sky with any old speed. In the Ptolemaic system, you tuned the speeds to get the appearances right. What Kepler discovered was those speeds were not random. They were not fine-tuned. They knew something about how big the orbit was. Kepler got... Remember, the whole point here was to get preserve appearances. Kepler's genius lied not only in his mathematical facility with dealing with data, but his ability to get below the surface appearances and get at the truth underneath. And when he saw the harmonic law in orbits, he felt he was basically looking at the ground truth of the universe. And he was. Because the shape of the orbit, equal areas law, and this period squared proportional A cubed can only be self-consistently explained in one way. Motion under a central gravitational law according to Isaac Newton. It was the key insight, the key description. This is just descriptions here. There's no explanation. He didn't know why it did this. Once you had this correct description, the door was open to modern physics. But there needed to be one further technological advance. A contemporary of Galileo, uh, a contemporary of Johannes Kepler working in Italy, down in Florence, Galileo Galilei, in the year 1609, got his hands on a letter describing a new device coming out of Holland in which a pair of lenses held together in just the right way with a tube could make distant objects look closer. It was called the telescope. He couldn't actually buy one of these things. They weren't on the market yet. He never got to see one, but he figured out the basic principles of them and built his own. And in the year 1609, 400 years ago this year, he turned that telescope upon the sky. He refined the design until he finally got up to about 20-30 power. This is a picture here of the two telescopes that are in the Museum of Science in Florence, Italy today. Little tiny things in long, beautifully handmade leather tubes. When he turned his telescope on the sky in 1609 and 1610, he saw a most wonderful and delightful sight. He found that the moon was in fact not a smooth, if slightly 
mottily colored celestial object, but in fact had craters and mountains and valleys upon its surface. It had terrain. Furthermore, he measured this on the left here as a woodcut from Galileo's book compared to a modern photograph. He was able to measure the lengths of those shadows and knowing something about the distance of the moon actually measured the heights of the moon, mountains and craters. He showed that the moon was not a perfect celestial body, but in fact was a world like the earth in the sense of having mountains and valleys and terrain. When he turned his telescope carefully to the sun using a projection system, he did not look through it because the sun would blind him doing that. What he found was that the face of the sun was not perfect and luminous. It had spots on it, dark spots. But furthermore, as he looked at it from day to day, those dark spots moved coherently across the surface. The sun was rotating on its axis, slowly, but rotating nonetheless. So in the Aristotelian world of heavenly perfection, the sun was a bright, self-luminous body made of perfect quintessence. Galileo showed it was a place of imperfection, and it was rotating on its own axis. When he turned his telescope in the fall of 1609, and early in the year 1610, to the planet Jupiter, what he saw was Jupiter seemed to be attended by a couple of stars. Bright stars, barely visible to the naked eye, but beautifully visible in his telescope. When he came back the next night, those stars had moved. Okay, Jupiter's moving through the sky. He came back a third night, stars had moved and followed Jupiter, and a third appeared, and finally by a fourth night, there were four stars. And as he watched them night after night after night, they weren't background stars. They were moons orbiting Jupiter, following it along the sky like four dogs following a hunter through the field. He had found a new center of motion in the universe that was not the Earth. Jupiter had moons. It was a center of motion. Those objects were moving about Jupiter, not about the Earth, not about the Sun. Finally, when he looked at the m Venus, he saw that Venus went through phases like the Moon. But the patterning of those phases told him something very important. Venus isn't orbiting the Earth. Venus is demonstrably orbiting the Sun. If you look at the motions in the Copernican prediction, the Venus goes around the Sun, the cycle of phases would be little tiny gibbous phases and great big crescents. The Ptolemaic picture had Venus moving around an epicycle, predicted crescents all the way around. The Ptolemaic picture was not just wrong, it was demonstrably wrong to anyone who could pick up a telescope and look through it. Arguments about calculational efficiency and philosophy were gone. Because all you had to do was look at it and say, Ptolemy fails, fail, Copernicus got the right answer. These were extremely powerful, high-impact observations. They immediately got people's attention. Now, I'd like to finish the, with this on Isaac Newton, but Isaac Newton's achievement is so big it would require an entire another lecture. What we really want to do, too, is say that Copernicus, Newton basically finished the Copernican Revolution by taking all of these observations from Cup, Kepler, taking all the observations of Galileo and synthesizing them together into three laws of motion and a law of gravity. But the Copernican Revolution gave us something more which is of use to us here. It taught us a number of principles. We do not occupy a special or privileged place in the universe. That that universe and everything within it can be understood in terms of and predicted using a set of basic physical laws. And more important, that the entire universe obeys the same laws everywhere in the universe and perhaps even at all times. These are powerful insights 
and they open the door to understanding the world as it is, not how we think it ought to be. So the Copernican Revolution begins the modern age. Any questions? All right, see you all tomorrow.